Okay, welcome to this evening's session of Kingdom 101. We continue our teaching about the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. And this evening, the title is called Detours and Distraction. But before we get into the teaching, I think it's good that we pray together. And as we have already learned the significance of this prayer, remembering that it is a kingdom prayer. That when we come to God, He's not just our Father, but He's also our King. And He's holy, His name is to be revered. We're asking for His kingdom to come, His will to be done. So as we pray this prayer together, let's join our hearts and really petition and ask uh, our Lord to teach us even as we get into our session this evening. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In the previous teaching entitled The Dead Trap, we dealt with an internal aspect of unforgiveness, that if we hold on to bitterness and we refuse to forgive, there's actually a trap. It holds us back. It keeps us back from moving forward with the purposes of the kingdom. But this evening, we will look at something that is like an external threat that comes against us. And these threats in the form of temptations, they deceive, they distract us, and they can derail us also from the purposes of the kingdom. Now, the enemy is very smart. You know, he will do these things to lay these traps to take our eyes off what is important. And if we fall for his trick, then we can miss the things of God. So this one line we're going to unpack. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does this mean? What is the significance? How does it feature in a kingdom agenda and in a kingdom prayer? Obviously, he's talking about temptations. So I think it's important for us to understand what temptations are. So let's start down there. Let's look at that first part of this two lines. Do not lead us into temptation. If you look at the Old Testament, and I remember reading also in the New Testament, in the King James, the Old English, sometimes you will see these three words being used almost interchangeably. It can be called a trial, temptation, or test. Now, if we don't understand the difference, then we can be a little bit confused, thinking that they are synonymous, they mean exactly the same thing. And, well, we're not really wrong, because the nuance of these three words is that, yeah, there's something to be tested, right? If, when you put something on trial, um, there's a test. You're trying to see whether is it okay or is it not okay. So it's important to see some of the original words that from the word temptation, it comes from a Greek word called perazzo. But the word test is a different Greek word called dokimazo. I know that sounds Japanese, but it's Greek, I assure you. So let's look at the first one called perazzo. These two words, one translating into a temptation, another as a test. You will find that in perazzo, the idea is to test with a view towards destruction. In other words, the purpose is, to, is for fault-finding. And then it, it 
it, it doesn't pass that test, then it is thrown away. That's called perazzo. And the word temptation is actually that now perazmon, literally to put pressure on something. Now this word is also used as a key title for Satan in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. He's called the tempter. So he's the one who comes and brings a temptation and he really wants to test something to find fault with it. And when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, it was really to bring Jesus down, to tempt him to find fault with the Christ so that if Jesus would succumb to any one of his temptations, then Jesus cannot qualify to be the one to die for all of us. In the same way, the Bible warns us that we are not to tempt God. In other words, we, we shouldn't be trying to tempt God to, to find fault with God. And later on, we will cover this point a little bit more. Now, the other word is called dokimazo, and it's translated test. Or, another word means to prove. And the objective of this is to test with a view of strengthening for the purpose of determining genuineness by fire so that this will reveal the true matter as the dross is burnt off. Can you see that difference here? One is to find fault. The other is to bring out genuineness. Very different, the nuance of these two Greek words. And the word dokimazo is used for Christians and we are called to test and examine ourselves. We are called to check and examine the genuineness of our faith. And so in that sense, a test is good for us because it burns off the drawers and it reveals what is really true that is within us. In fact, God also invites us. He says, why don't you prove me? Right? He, he says, no, don't tempt me, but you can prove me. Right? Don't try and find fault with me, but prove me that I'm good, that I'm faithful, that I'm merciful, that I love you. Two simple words. And yet in the English, when we look at the word temptation or the word test, they seem to imply the same thing. How about this one word trial? The word trial seems to denote also for us a difficult situation, right? And that's again, very natural for us to um, accord that kind of a thinking because when you take an exam, it's a difficult situation, right? You, you go through a trial. It's tough. It's a difficult circumstance. But out of this teaching, I want you to see something, that when you and I go through a difficult circumstance or a trial, as we call it, obviously something is being tested. But you'll find that there are two sides of the coin, or the same coin of this trial. On one side, it can be a temptation. On the other side, it can be a test. Exact same situation that you go through. You will find these two things happening, a temptation and a test. Let me explain. You will find a temptation to go against God. But on the flip side, it is a test to stay faithful to God. You will find a temptation to give up on God. On the other side, a test to hold on to God. You will also find a temptation to live beneath the expectations of God or a test to rise up to maturity in God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Right? So you just think back. Any difficult moment that you're going through, 
these two things will always be happening. So it's the, it's the same coin, they're just two sides. And therein lies the paradox. Because temptations are meant to distract us from the purposes and the plans of the kingdom of God. But tests are meant to keep us on track and position us for the purposes and the plans of the kingdom of God. This is the paradox. And these two things happen at the same time. There's a tension that pulls you one side to the other side. On one hand, God tests us. But on the other hand, Satan will use that situation to tempt us. Satan wants to tempt us, but God allows that situation to test us, knowing full well that He has given us every resource and power in Him to pass that test. And so the only differentiating factor, the only key thing that sets these two things apart is what? Our response. How do you respond in a difficult situation? How do you respond when you're going through a trial and you're facing on one hand a temptation that wants to prove you or test you wrong, to find fault with you? That's what Satan wants to do. The moment you fail in that, in that test or in that temptation, Satan comes to you and goes, see, call yourself a Christian. But on the other hand, there is something that God wants you to go through as a test because He wants you to be strengthened and built up. He wants you to pass. The main things that differentiate this is our response. Will you succumb to the temptation and fail the test or will you stay true to God and His Word and pass the test? See, we have to understand temptation, trial and test. Otherwise, you think that they're all different things at different times and you get snooped or get confused when you're going through something that is challenging. So how do you pray this line? Do not lead us into temptation. It's like, God, please, you know, please don't tempt me. But the Bible tells us God tempts no one. God does not tempt us. And yet at the same time, you know, we, we know that God does allow us to be tempted. So that whilst we are being tempted, we are also being tested. And since we know that a test is good, but a temptation is not good for us, but both happen at the same time, we don't get to choose one or the other, this becomes the prayer that explains that one line, do not lead us into temptation. It's, it can be paraphrased to, to read as, Lord, test me, Lord, test me, Lord, but, but do not allow me to succumb to the temptation. Right? Because as a believer, as a disciple, we know, Lord, we, we know a test is good because you want to prove me. You want me to go through this so that I can pass it and get to the next level. You want me to grow. You want me to mature. So don't run away from a difficult situation. Don't run away from something that God is using to test you. But in and through that test, God allows the enemy to tempt you because he knows he's always there with you and he has already given you a resource for you to overcome. So our perspective of this is important. We're saying, Lord, test me, Lord. No problem. I, I know it's good for me. Test me. But promise me, Lord, don't let me succumb to the temptation. In other words, you're saying, Lord, help me so that I, I will not be distracted, I will not be detoured from your purposes, from your assignments from me, from anything that is in the kingdom of God. See, having laid this foundation about temptations right now and also about understanding tests and trials, 
Let's go a little bit more deeply. And let's learn from another church. And we find this church in the wilderness, and her name is called Israel. They're referred to an assembly in the wilderness. And in a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, the entire passage will spend some time in this. Paul was writing to the church in Corinth and he was warning them. He says, my, my dear friends, I don't want you to be unaware. Don't go through your journey, blur, blur, thinking, you know, don't know what hit you or what you're going through. Huh? I don't want you to be unaware. Now, this is important, friends, because I also don't want you to be unaware. I've seen many Christians very clueless about what it means to travel along their spiritual journey. He goes on in the first few verses, he says, do you know something of that generation that came out? All of them that came out of Egypt, they were saved out of Egypt. All our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. And then he contrasts with this one line in verse 5. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Don't miss the contrast. Paul was making a very, very important point. All were saved out of Egypt, but with most of them, God was not well pleased. Now, if you want to paraphrase for us as New Testament Christians, we parallel our salvation with that of Israel out of Egypt, is it not? And so I can say, if you are a believer and all of us are believers here, from the left to the right, this entire room, all of us have been saved, yes? All baptized, all drinking of the same spiritual rock which is in Christ. That's what Paul was saying. The question is, will we have a contrasting line at the end of that, but with most of us, would God be pleased or not pleased? What was the problem? What was the problem for this church in the wilderness? Paul says, look, these things happened to them and all these things became our examples. It's for us to learn from them. So don't look at the Old Testament and say, oh, Old Testament, I am New Testament, so it doesn't apply to me anymore. Paul says, no, look, look at the Old Testament, it's there for a reason. You better learn something from it. Because if you commit the same mistakes in the same way, you will also fall short of what God wants for you. So these are the examples. And what were these things? Paul was referring to the temptations that are common to men. He says all these temptations they went through exactly the same as what you are going through. So don't think that you're going through something that is difficult. Don't think that when you are tempted that, wow, your temptation is oh, so strong, huh? but the other one is not so strong. All the same. Everything the same. Because in verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. All the same. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, what were these temptations? I'm going to show you five. And these five, all of us will struggle with. It's common to each and every one of us. And if we are not careful in the way we deal with these, then we don't know how to deal with these distractions and these detours, then we may succumb to these temptations and be misaligned from the purposes of God. 
But God allows these temptations for us to learn, and in, the, in His context, it will be a test. That as we go through these, we will learn and we will grow and we will mature. So join me. Five common temptations. And let's see whether you agree with me that you also struggle with all of these, as I do. The very first one uh, would be the temptation of evil things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Let's learn from them to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, this is an interesting line. Evil things. I know in our hearts we are thinking, evil meh? No la, I don't like evil things. Now, you have to ask, what did Israel last after in the wilderness? There was nothing in the wilderness for them to last after. They were lasting after or looking back to the good things in Egypt. Those were the things that they craved for. They were so unhappy with Moses time and again. Moses, why do you bring us out from Egypt? Why do you take us into this place where there's nothing? All we see is wilderness. I would rather go back into Egypt because there, there's garlic, there's leek, there's onions. Now at this point, we're wondering again, is onion evil? Is garlic or leek evil? No, not, not the item itself. The point here is very, very simple. Do you know you and I lust and desire after the good things of the world also? Often, a lot of times. Our desires are in the good things of this world. We are lusting after what God withholds from us. And we are discontented with what God provides for us. Examine our hearts. Is it not true that many times our hearts tend to be, or our minds tend to be set on things of the flesh and not of the spirit? And when we look at the things we have or things that we don't have or the things that we really want and we desire and we lust and we crave, the question we ask is, but what's wrong with that? Instead of asking another question, is this God's best for me? We struggle with this, right? And many times as Christians, we are telling people, you know, I, I think we should abstain from this. Oh, but nothing wrong, what? We lust after the things of the world. We, we conform to the patterns of the world. When as kingdom people, we, we should be asking, Lord, is this good for me? Is this appropriate for me? It's not whether is it bad or, or something like Sometimes it looks very okay. It looks very harmless. And yet Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial for me. I will not be mastered by any of these things that would take control of my life and my thoughts. And today in the church with teachings like the prosperity gospel or blessing type of teaching, do you know that Christians can fall into this category, although it does not appear evil, but we crave also after the good things and the blessings of this world. And we justify by saying, oh, these are the desires of my heart. And God loves me so much and He wants to grant me the desires of my heart. It's a very dangerous position to be in because we can rationalize and explain away all these temptations to say that it's okay to crave after all these things. And you know, the more you crave after this, the more you'll be distracted, the more you'll be detoured, the more you'll be discontented, the more you will be upset. 
In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away. You see that? Misaligned, distracted, detoured. When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Common temptation number one. Temptation to lust after evil things. Temptation number two is the temptation of the idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now Paul was quoting from an episode in Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. Now when we look at this word idolatry, instinctively, of course, we will say, oh no, no, I, I, I don't worship any other God. I have no idols in my home. I don't have all these things. You know, Jesus, you're the only one. You're the King of Kings. Uh, God, you're the one true God. So I have no idols. But you know that we can extend this principle to anything we place before or above God. And so if you begin to worship your career, that becomes idolatrous for you. If you begin to worship money, then it becomes idolatrous also for you, and so on and so forth. There are many things that we can worship. We can even worship our children. We can worship even our church or even our ministry, and that can be idolatrous because we put that over and above God. But specifically, this, for this one point, especially in this episode in Exodus chapter 32, Israel wanted to worship a God because Moses had stayed up on the mountain and they didn't know when he was going to come back. And so Israel went to Aaron and said, look, we don't know what has happened to Moses. Why don't you build a God for us? And that was what Aaron did. Aaron collected all the jewelry and melted the gold and up came a golden calf. Now, he didn't name the golden calf some other name. He didn't name it anything else. He didn't call it any other God. After he made the golden calf, Aaron declared, and he said, people of Israel, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. Now, we know God brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't the calf. But I think Aaron was trying to sort of, you know, straddle across two different places, say, okay, I can build a calf and yet say this is God who brought him out of Egypt. So I'm safe. We're still worshipping God, but I'm just giving him a little, you know, a facade, an image that we can look at. So to Aaron and the people, they were worshipping the God who brought them out of Egypt. What they didn't realize was they had made an image of Yahweh for themselves. And that's idolatrous. Can Christians make the same mistake today? Yes, we can. I'm not saying that you have an idol of Jesus in your home. That's not the point I'm making. I'm saying, can we remake God or Jesus into an image that we are comfortable with? Definitely so. Definitely so. If this God appears a little bit too fierce, we will say, oh no, God is not like that anymore. Oh, you know, he's too exacting. Oh, that's too legalistic. Oh, he's actually only grace. Then we begin to re-image him and remodel this God and this Jesus for us. Anything that's too hard for us to accept, you know, we are quick to offer suggestions, alternatives, and we make God into our image. And suddenly, before you know it, this Jesus that you worship 
seems to agree with everything that you say. This God that you are calling the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, after a while, uh, his personality and his character uh, sound like you and look like you. Is that possible? Very possible. Do you think it's happening today? I think in many, many quarters. Because we don't like the God of the Bible. And there's a great temptation to remake God into our image. So you don't like church A, you go to church B. You don't like church B, you go to church C. You just find one that talks to you and makes you feel good and happy. No need to repent. No need to talk about sin. No need to do anything. Just relax and we're all going to be good. That's idolatry, friends. Is there a big temptation common to all of us? Definitely so. Temptation number two. Temptation number three, of course, is the temptation of sexual immorality always tied to idolatry. If you want to listen to that teaching, you know, you'll find it in the past uh, sessions. Chapter 10, verse 8, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now what was Paul referring to? This is an account that you can find in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 18. And this is referred to as the doctrine of Balaam. Now you know that Balak was a king who hired Balaam as a prophet to curse Israel. And try as he might, Balaam just couldn't curse Israel because God prohibited it. So you cannot curse something or someone or this nation that I have blessed. There's no way you can curse someone that I have blessed. And that's a beautiful side lesson because today, if you want to curse me, you be careful because you can't do that. I am blessed and you are blessed. I will not receive that curse and if you don't receive that curse, nothing will we have to worry about. We are blessed of the Lord. That's what the Lord says. You can't curse something that I have blessed. You can't unbless someone that I have blessed. And so Balaam couldn't do anything but he's sneaky as a prophet because he wants to collect money from Balak, right? He wants to profit from unrighteousness. That's what it says in the book of Second Peter. So he tells Balak, I can't curse them because God has blessed them. But I can tell you what you can do to them so that they can bring trouble upon themselves. You can cause them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. These are the two things. And so that's what they did. Suddenly, the women of Moab came up and Israel performed harlotry with the women of Moab. And as they engaged in those practices of sexual immorality, that also tied them to the kind of rituals and the gods that they worshipped in that time. Now, that's in the Old Testament, but Paul says, you be careful of this because 23,000 fell that day. Is the doctrine of Balaam still alive in the church? Definitely so. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, he warns the church. Peter says, you be careful of the way of Balaam. Jude, verse 11, mentions Balaam one more time. Please be careful because there are these apostates, there are these false teachers who are going the way of Balaam. Revelations chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus himself pronounces a caution. You be careful of the doctrine of Balaam. Is it alive in the church today? Definitely so. And you find that sexual immorality continues in the church. Sometimes we don't see it because no one talks about it. 
But it would be very interesting if we do a survey of how many men are watching pornography outside of church. We're talking about Christians here. Do you think it's happening? I believe so. But nobody just wants to expose this elephant in the room. Are pastors watching pornography? Are ministers getting caught in sexual immorality, adulterous cases? Are we beginning to accept homosexuality in marriages, adultery, fornication? No one wants to talk about these things. But this is temptation that is common to all. And I believe it's happening in the circles of the church. Temptation number four. The temptation of tempting God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. This account is recorded in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. When Israel was in the wilderness and they were journeying by the way of the Red Sea, it says here, the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God, against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now these are the people uh, who get manna every day. Uh, where we derive the line, give us this day our daily bread. And the people are getting upset with God and with Moses, and they say, why you give us this worthless bread? And verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. The verse that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, Nor let us tempt. Now that word tempt is the same root word. Perazzo. Except that this is a compound word. It is ek. Perazomen. And with that compound word added on, it actually means to try to the utmost, to push to the limit, to tempt out. And one commenter actually wrote this. It says that this one word actually means to wear out the long-suffering of Christ. Now this is maybe shocking to some people. So you mean... Jesus's or God's long-suffering can be worn out one. Paul was telling the people, very simply, don't push it. God is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. He's willing to put up with your nonsense, you know. But guys, don't push it. Don't test God in this way. Don't, don't tempt Him. And it reveals the condition of the heart. I mean, God provided for them in the wilderness. God gave all those things, looked after them, protected them, and they were selfish, they were self-centered, and, you know, they just took God for granted, and instead of seeing it as a blessing, they saw it as worthless bread. And they began to doubt God. They said, are you sure not? You're, you're, you're this God. I mean, where is this promise thing you're talking about? I mean, we're here, God, it's all your fault, you know. I mean, come on, man. And we were okay in Egypt. Now you think about it, have there been times that we have been like that? Where God has given us not just manna, you know, that's daily bread. God has given us quails, bonuses. We've enjoyed more than enough, yes? And at the slightest problem, the, the first sign of a difficult moment, 
we look at God and say, where are you, man, God? Why are you like that? You're powerful, you know, man. I, mean, I thought you said you are faithful. And we begin to doubt Him. That's called tempting Him. It's different when we are in that time and we are saying, oh, Lord, you know, aren't you faithful? You are the one who, we're proving His faithfulness. That's different. But to tempt His faithfulness and to doubt Him and to blame Him is almost like saying, Lord, I'm finding fault with you. You are a problem. I'm here because of you. Well, in a way, it's true. He allowed it. But it's all your fault. Thank you for the promotion. I, I'm, I'm earning 50000 a month. But it's all your fault that I can't go home. <laughs> Do people talk like that? Yes. We tempt God. And that's a common, common temptation. And Paul is warning the people, he said, come on guys, don't, don't blow it, okay? Don't push it. God is gracious. He's slow to anger. But don't push it. Know your limits. You better know who you're talking to. This is God. And even if He allows you to go through a very, very, very difficult moment, read the book of Job. After Job was going, oh, come, oh God, oh God. And God says, were you there? Did you do this? Come on, let's contend with me. Now you talk, you stay okay, scan. And at the end of the day, Job just had to shut up and say, you are God and I'm not. Temptation number four. How are you faring at this point? Temptation number five. The temptation to complain. Okay, I know I'm not talking to you guys. We don't complain here. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And Paul was very specific. He was referring to an incident in Numbers chapter 16. And we call this the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they incited sort of like a protest against Moses and Aaron. And together, they gathered 250 leaders with them. Now, specifically, these were discontented with their lot in ministry. They were upset with the leadership of Moses and Aaron. And in fact, they actually went up to Moses and said, who made you in charge of us? Why must be you? Why can't be us? We're also quite good. Right? Why should you be our leader? And so Moses took up that challenge with them and says, okay, fine, if you let, let me not be the judge. God will be the one. He, after all, He is the one who appoints. And so let's have a showdown. You come. And the one that God chooses, God chooses. Of course, God was very angry and He was very upset. And He says, all right, ask them now to stand in front of the tents with their families and together with the 250 leaders, what happened? The earth opened up. We just had a sinkhole in Japan. It might have been a sinkhole in the wilderness. Suddenly, the ground just opened up and it swallowed up the leaders together with their families. And not only that, fire came down, consumed the 250 leaders who stood with them. Now, you would think that after seeing all these things, the people would learn their lesson, right? The next day, they went back to Moses and said, look at you guys, because of you, we lost 250 leaders. It's like, where you get these guys from? They were still arguing and still fighting. And God says, all right, you want to argue some more? Fine, the plague starts. And people start to die. One by one, they drop. But Moses, with a heart 
that is compassionate tells Aaron, please go, 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 go take the censer, put incense in it, and go run into the middle of this congregation. And when he stood there, he stood between the people who were dead, and they stopped where he was, and there were those who were alive. And on that day, 14,700 died in the plague. And this is a lesson about complaining, not just general complaining, but specifically complaining against spiritual leadership that has been set above us. It shows pride. It reveals a spirit that is not submissive. And we do not acknowledge that these leaders are appointed by God. And when we complain against our spiritual leaders, it is the same and equated with complaining against God. Because if God is the one who appointed and we're really saying, God, you, you, you appointed the wrong guy. It should have been me. Right? You did a bad job. If I were you, I would have appointed myself. And there would have been no problem. And so we are not to complain against the people of God. I know it's not easy because our leaders are not perfect people and they make mistakes. And so you have to discern where you serve in and which church you are in. And if you find yourself doing this, then you're going through a test or a temptation. Correct? And you have to then discern, Lord, what is it you want me to do so that I can respond correctly that I don't bring shame to the body of Christ. I remind people often, and I will always say it over again, your kingdom assignment is what you want to know. But I can assure you, your kingdom assignment is not complaining. There are many people in the church who think that they have been raised up by the Lord, anointed to complain. We don't need that, okay, guys? We don't need that. If you want to complain, you and I can sit down for a long while and we can talk to the cows, come home, and there still will be complaints. But you'll do you no good, you'll do me no good. All we're going to have will be heavy hearts. We may even be laden with bitterness, unforgiveness, and worse off, we are, we'll have pride. We think that we are much better than other people. We are doing it better. And one danger of our keepers awakening, especially when we have this mandate of awakening the saints, you know, and it's like, wow, I agree with you, you know, uh, I, it resonates with me. We must go awaken the saints. What are we saying if we're not careful? I'm awake, you're asleep. I'm good, you're bad. I'm on the right side, you're on, a, you're on the wrong side. Then we begin to complain to everyone. It's a bad attitude, be careful. And I've had to check myself over and over again because if we are going to awaken the saints, we're going to do it with grace and with humility. Amen? That has to be the way. We don't go on a high horse and scold people. That's not the right thing to do. Don't be part of the problem. Seek God for your assignment, the real one, and be a solution. Can I have amen? Okay. So don't be a complainer. And especially don't complain against spiritual leadership. If you really, really disagree with someone um, or a church leader, then perhaps your time is up in that congregation. Move. Singapore, very easy. 700 churches for you to pick from. If you want, you can start one yourself too. And then you see how it is to be complained against. <laughs> Praise the Lord. God bless you. See, Paul was saying, look, look at these warnings. The evil things are not necessarily ghastly things like Halloween and even you know, things that, uh, that, that, that are very obvious. They're the good things of this world. They entice you. You think the devil comes with you with two horns and a pointed tail? No. 
He comes to you with things that you like. That's why it's a temptation. Be careful of idolatry. And I'm not talking about other religions which you and I know that we should not be a part of. But we're talking about remaking God into our own image. Be careful of sexual immorality because the, the moral thermometer is just sliding all the way down. Be careful of tempting God. Each time you want to shake your fist at God, you just think a little bit more. And if you're angry with God, oh, it's your, it's your wrestling with Him. I, I tell people, it's okay to, to wrestle with God, but still know that He's God. And be careful about complaining against spiritual leadership. And so we go to the second part. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think the easiest thing to do is just blame the devil. Everything blame the devil. <laughs> it's the evil one. Is his fault? No, no, no. Deliver us from the evil one. What does that mean? I think Paul has a parallel here and he paraphrased it in the scriptures in chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to men. We've gone through that. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now a side note for all of us. In case you are not aware, this verse is one of the most misinterpreted verses in Christian understanding. Because whenever someone goes through a difficult time, someone will say, Oh, look at this verse. God will never allow you to uh, go through something that you cannot bear. So that means this thing is okay for you. The situation per se. But specifically, it's talking about the temptation that you need to overcome. Not so much the situation that you're going through, although related. Okay? Just a side note for you. What is this way of escape? God has already given us Jesus as the deliverer. And He has shown us Jesus as the way. God has already made the way for us. And so if you are tempted in a situation, your eyes mustn't be looking at the things that you are tempted with or trying to fight this all by yourself. When you are tempted, look for the way that is in Christ. After all, Jesus said, I am the, I'm the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. This is the right way. You walk with me. You walk according to how I walk and you will overcome this temptation in the same way that I've overcome. I'm also the deliverer. I'm the one that will deliver you out of this temptation because I came here to set you free even from the entrapment of temptations. If you look at Jesus as the way, the truth and the life, you see that temptations are actually exactly the opposite. Temptations are detours from the way. The right way that you should be walking. The way of God and the way of the kingdom. Temptations are deceptions that twist the truth that is found in His person and in His word. Temptations, if you allow it to feed on you, after a while will bring death as opposed to the life that is found only in God and in Jesus Christ. You see, and that's why when you're going through a difficult moment, cliche as it might sound, you have to look at Jesus. You have to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Now, we've learned from the church in the wilderness, and we know they didn't really pass the test well. In fact, they failed. 
for with most of them, God was not pleased. You have to look at Second Israel, another person also in the wilderness. And you have to learn now from the positive example of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was also tempted. If you want to know this teaching, go and listen to the session entitled Beta Testing. We went through the temptation, all three temptations of Jesus, and we went into detail of each of them. How did Jesus overcome the tempter? He was being tempted as well as being tested as the Son of God. Firstly, Jesus knew who he was. He knew his identity. Friends, do you know your identity? See, the whole world is trying to give you a different identity. It's trying to help you identify yourself in other terms. And temptations will come to you to challenge your identity. What does it mean to be a good Christian? If you don't have a breakthrough, does it mean that you don't have faith? If you are not rich, then does it mean that you're not blessed of God? If you don't have what other people have, then does it mean that you're not walking right with Jesus? The temptations will come. Do you know your identity? Do you know who you are? Jesus' mind was set on the spiritual and not on the natural. He was asked to turn stones to bread. And to him, it was like, I know, I can do this. But I'm not looking at the natural. I'm looking at the spiritual. I'm looking at the eternal. He was walking by faith. He was not looking by sight. So if you are going through a difficult moment and there's a trial and there's a circumstance that is difficult to navigate through, you can't walk by sight because as you are looking at these things, it's difficult. You've got to walk by faith. What does God say? What does God desire for you? You have to keep believing Him and keep holding on even though you don't see things coming through. Jesus stood steady on the Word of God. When you're going through, and especially when you're going through a difficult time, you must be anchored on the Word of God. You cannot listen to the other voices. Plenty. Some of them come from the Christians. And they can derail you. They can distract you. Do you know what God is saying? What is the Word of God to you? What's your theology? Not some twisted information, not some popular thing that you want to hold on to. Jesus would only do it God's way and not the world's way. See, the enemy will always throw something at you. There will always be a temptation to say, give it up, la. it's fine, let it go, don't worry, God understands. That's the temptation. But God wants you to pass the test. And the greatest thing, I believe, what kept Jesus on, I believe, is that He stayed true to His kingdom assignment. And that's why I'm so passionate about asking believers to say, you need to know your assignment. You need to be aligned with the Word of God, aligned with the things of God, aligned with the agenda of God, with the purposes of God. You know something? When you don't have an assignment, there's nothing that keeps you on that track. But if you know you need to complete that assignment, then literally come hell high water, you are not going to compromise. You are going to stay faithful to your assignment. And Jesus knew his assignment. He knew that if he failed in that one test, he doesn't qualify anymore. He cannot take the place for all of us. And it would have not mattered if he healed a thousand or ten thousand or twenty thousand or he cast out how many demons. 
if he did not fulfill that final assignment upon the cross, you and I have no business sitting here. Jesus in the wilderness set that perfect example. But as you go through all this, as you decide to walk the way that Jesus did, don't miss that last line that says that as God provides that way, Jesus is that way, as you are plowing through that temptation, that, that difficult moment, that you may be able to bear it. There is an enduring that is required of all of us. See, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. He passed that test beautifully. But do you think the enemy will let it go? No. The Bible says that the enemy left him until an opportune time. And I believe many instances after that. But the next time that was a real biggie would have been the Garden of Gethsemane, right? To say, let it go. Come on, Jesus. Give it up. No problem. You can still have the crown. You don't need the cross. Just worship me. You'll be all right. Don't need to die. Let this cup pass from you. That was a temptation. But Jesus says, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. And he passed that test. And from that point on, he walked the way called the Via Dolorosa. It's called the way of suffering. And friends, I don't think you like to hear this. But sometimes to bear through a difficult time will entail the bearing through the way of suffering. Because as you suffer through, that's where the test is happening to burn away the dross. That's when the gold is being refined. That's where the silver is being refined. That's when the genuineness of your faith is being tested, that it will shine to the glory of God. If God just take you out like that, you will never learn anything. And that's what I believe when we are praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Not just to zap us out, but you've given us this way. The way of Jesus, the one who has already delivered us upon that cross. And we learn how to bear through it. But as you are walking through, and if you're going through a very difficult moment, even at this point, I want to tell you that God is faithful. God is faithful. That's what Paul was saying to encourage the people. No temptation that you're experiencing is uncommon. We all go through it. Everyone here, we're all struggling with this. Then he declares, but God is faithful. Every temptation that is allowed for you, he, he knows. He's already given that resource. He's already empowered you with it. Jesus has already done it for you. You just need to hang on to the Lord. And God will be faithful to see you through and also to take you through. Because understand this, God is not there to break you down. God is there to build you up. The enemy wants you to fail, but God wants us to pass. Kingdom people, finally, God wants us to have kingdom character. That we can be on kingdom assignment for His kingdom glory and for His kingdom purpose. This is God's idea, you see. He wants to test us that if we are faithful in the little things, the small things, then in the big things, we will show ourselves faithful also. So friends, if you're still praying and wondering what your big assignment is, can I encourage you? Why don't you be faithful in the small ones first? Oh, I'm not sure what is this big kingdom assignment I have. doesn't matter. If God has given you an opportunity, I call it a sub-assignment. Faithfully, struggles through that. Oh, but I don't like. Too bad. Then that's a test for you. 
you might be succumbing to some of those temptations when you say, I want to choose what I want and what I don't want, right? God is faithful and there's a promise that awaits. Look at James chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Perazmon. Endures. You really have to endure. Bear through it. Because the temptation is not just one moment. It can be sometimes one week. It can be three months. For when he has been approved, dokimos, dokimazo, proven, tested, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the promise. God is faithful. He will not allow you to go through something without promising you something at the end. And that's why you've got to know that He's a good God. He's a faithful God. And He wants you to pass. Because well, He will look at you and pat you on the back and say, well done, man. You did good. You did good. Let's go for the next round. And He elevates you and He promotes you in that sense. So my dear friends, are you facing detours and distractions? And as I speak with people and I counsel people, all have very good intentions. Pastor, I want to know my assignment. I want to do this. I want to do that. But I don't know what, leh. I, I haven't heard, leh. Can I humbly, gently, graciously suggest to you, why don't you deal with the detours and distractions first? Really, I, I've seen so many good intentions, but they are not aligned to what the Lord wants. And their lives are like this picture that you see, so many highways and byways, they don't even know which road to take. And they're all over the place, but they come, I want to know my assignment. I say, I know you want, but will you deal with these distractions and these detours so that you can get back into alignment with the Lord? And as we pray this one last line in the, in the disciples' prayer, you see, this is the one that makes it or breaks it, isn't it? That keeps us on track or takes us off. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Allow me to paraphrase it for us. And perhaps after this, we can pray this prayer and these lines together. That these two lines to me today would mean, I'm praying, Lord, test me. I'm willing, test me. Because I know it's good for me. But please help me, alright? Do not allow me to succumb to temptation. Hold me because you are faithful. Jesus is my deliverer and He's already shown me what it means to bear through the way of escape. If I understand this, then Lord, will you enable me by your grace? Because He's shown me the way and He has given me the ability to do it by His power. May I never be derailed, detoured, or distracted from fulfilling my kingdom assignments. This is my prayer. And because it's my prayer, it's a good prayer for me, but it's my prayer, so it's not a good prayer for you until you make it your prayer. How many of you would like to pray this and make this your prayer? Then it's good for you because you're praying from your heart with your desire to be faithful to your kingdom assignments. So let's close and let's pray together. I want to stand with you because I know every temptation and difficult time trial that you and I go through is not uncommon to any of us. So as we close in prayer, we're going to stand together and even with our brothers and sisters who are listening in to this recording, we're going to ask God to help us 
and to enable us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, that if we would mine your word for gold, precious stones, it's all there. And I pray, Lord, that this will not just be one line that we remember in the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer where we say it so quickly that it means nothing to us. But tonight, Lord, we acknowledge all of us struggle with difficult situations in our lives. And they may be of our own doing or they may be a result of someone else's wrongdoing or undoing in their own lives and it has affected us. But through these trials, these difficult moments, there are temptations and there are tests. Lord, far be it for us to compromise, Lord. But we want to pass the test to do what you desire us for us to do. And so we pray this prayer, Lord, to say, Lord, test us. It's okay. Test us because it's for our good. But Lord, as you do that, will you be gracious? Hold us so that you don't allow us to succumb to temptation. And we know it's not beyond us because you have allowed it. You know that we can go through it because of what Jesus has done. And we give you thanks and praise that Jesus, He's our deliverer. And he's already shown us what it means to bear through this way of escape. Enable us, O oh God, in this difficult moment to bear through it by your grace. And Lord, as we come through this, you align us, you refine us, O oh Lord. You empower us, O oh Lord. And you show us our assignments. May we never, never be derailed, detoured, or distracted from fulfilling our kingdom assignments. And I thank you for community that we can watch over one another. We can encourage each other, speak into each other's lives, strengthen one another, even as we go through this together and also with your presence with all of us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.